Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Kathy Greer, a licensed independent social worker and certified sex addiction therapist candidate about sex addiction. We felt that this conversation dovetailed well with our previous recordings with Dr. Nikki Julian about sex shame, since sex shame and sex addiction are closely tied. We also want to remind our listeners that you can support the WCH podcast and get a beautiful PDF of all of our show notes by becoming a patron of the Woman-Centered Health podcast. You can learn more about becoming a patron by visiting our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. So the first question we like to ask all of our guests is what is your education and your background? Sure. So I received my bachelor's degree in sociology with a minor in social work from Simpson College And I have a master's in social work from the University of Iowa, and I'm currently an independently licensed mental health therapist. I've been in social work for a really, really long time as a bachelor's level social worker. Um, In the last 10 years, I've had my master's and been working in therapy, mostly in addiction and reproductive health. The other question we always ask all of our guests is, what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? So I think most social workers are drawn to this field just because they want to help people, obviously. I think a lot of times, especially if you go into therapy, you're kind of that born listener. So like in your friend group or your family, you're the person who people call when things go wrong. So I think it's something innate that just makes you a good listener. And I always thought that about myself. But I also think that people who get into helping fields are because either like in their lifetime, somebody helped them when they really needed it and they want to emulate that or they wish somebody would have helped them in some area. So they want to be that for somebody else. I always say that like 40% of what I've done in my career has come from amazing women who taught me and shared their knowledge with me from, you know, my professors at Simpson and my professors at Iowa. But I really think that the other 60%, it's just life experience. And that's either from my family of origin and what I grew up with and personal relationships of my own. I think the biggest part though, that I always say is from being a mom is what really drives me. And my only adult perspective is being a mom. So I was really young when I had my first child. So I I can't take being an, an adult away from the perspective of being a mom. Like they're just both combined for me. And I think I've always thought about what I want for my own children, what I wish I would have done differently, what I wish would have been done differently with me so I could be different for them. And I really started realizing early on in my career that what people really, really want is just to be heard and they want to be validated and, you know, to be validated with compassion and empathy and no judgment. And I just realized that so many people had never had that in their life. And so I've always thought that, you know, I want my family to be healthy and happy and improved. And so I feel like I need to do whatever I can to help other people's families have those same things. That's a great perspective. So how did that sort of dovetail into specifically sex addiction? So I think the interesting thing is that I look at is in my careers, how many pieces came together either by just where I happened to be at the time and perspectives. You know, when I was at Simpson College, I got really interested in a few 
classes that uh, Rachel Bandy had, and it was on either sexual violence, uh, a lot of women's studies, gender studies, different things. And I was just instantly hooked there. So then when I got into, again, my biggest bachelor's level work was at Planned Parenthood with reproductive health. And at the time that I worked there, I also had children that I was having these discussions with. And I've always been very open, like sex is just not a topic that's a difficult one for me to have with really anybody. So fast forward, and I go through grad school, and I was working in substance addiction for years. And then I started working, I decided to take myself out of that. It's a really heavy field and a lot of long hours. I was a single mom, so I wanted kind of a nine to five job. So I started working for the transplant team at Methodist Hospital, but I wanted to keep my toes in the water with therapy, but I only wanted to do like an evening a week. I was a single mom. And again, that, you know, had to be around the kiddos schedule. So I wanted one evening a week when she was at dance. So I just kept looking at, you know, where are some part-time therapy jobs and just happened upon got an email about a possible therapy position in Ankeny at Full Heart Family Therapy. And they, it was general mental health therapy, but they wanted somebody who would specifically work towards being a certified sex addiction therapist. That's kind of their niche and what they were known for. So Mary Meyer is the owner and founder at Full Heart. So I met with her and just explained, you know, I just want to do an evening a week. And she said, I'll take whatever I can get. Sounds great. And it just, that's where it came from. I love hearing your story. And I think one kind of common theme between a lot of nurses and social workers, and I think doctors as well, is we all have these somewhat traumatic histories or we practice and we form our life kind of somewhat out of scarcity. Like we didn't have these things. And so we try to provide these things for others or we come from that place of we didn't have this, so we want it for other people. And I think you really embodied that with what you just said. So thank you for sharing that and being vulnerable with us. Sure. Okay. So like we said, today we are going to talk about sex addiction. So let's jump right in. I'm super psyched about this. So can you start out by sharing with us what is sex addiction and how is it diagnosed? Sure. So the kind of textbook definition of sex addiction is any sexually related compulsive behavior, which interferes with normal living and causes severe stress on family, friends, loved ones, and one's work environment. And I think it's interesting to note that a diagnosis of sex addiction has nothing to do with the amount of or number of times someone has sex. It's really about how the behaviors affect them. And there's lots of different instruments that we use to diagnose. There's the SDI, which is the sexual dependency inventory. And that really helps therapists not only to diagnose, but also to kind of form a treatment plan. It gives us more information. But ultimately, it's really you just use the diagnostic criteria from the DSM, which we use for any addiction. So basically, if you were looking at it and someone who's used to diagnosing substance use, you would just substitute that alcohol or that drug, you substitute that with sexual behaviors. So the 10 criteria that we look at are loss of control, which is clear behavior in which you do more than you intend or want. Compulsive behavior, which is a pattern of out of control behavior over time. Efforts to stop, which are repeated specific attempts to stop the behavior which fail. Four is loss of time, significant amounts of time lost doing and or recovering from the behaviors. Preoccupation, obsessing about or because of the behavior. Inability to fulfill obligations, the behavior interferes with work, school, family, or friends. Continuation, despite consequences, so the failure to stop the behavior even though you have problems because of it. Escalation the need to make behavior more intense, more frequent, or more risky, and losses, losing, limiting, or sacrificing valued parts of life, such as hobbies, family, relationships, and work, 
And then lastly, withdrawal. So stopping the behavior causes considerable distress, anxiety, restlessness, irritability, or physical discomfort. So basically you need three criteria to indicate the presence of addiction. And then any more than three, you just go up and you diagnose it as either being mild, moderate, or severe, depending upon the number of criteria and individual needs. So then, Kathy, in what ways are someone who is addicted to drugs and someone who is addicted to sex similar and or different? It's interesting because really they're so similar in most ways. So individuals who are addicted to alcohol or other drugs, for example, they develop a relationship with their, you know, chemical of choice, whatever that is. And it's a relationship that takes precedence over most of the other aspects of their lives. And addicts find that they need drugs merely to feel normal. But in sex addiction, a parallel situation exists. So sex, like food or drugs and other addictions, provides the high, and addicts become dependent on the sexual high to feel normal. They substitute unhealthy relationships for healthy ones, and they opt for temporary pleasure rather than the deeper qualities of healthy, intimate relationships. And sexual addiction follows the same progressive nature of other addictions. So again, you can build up the tolerance. There's a withdrawal the same way that you have from uh, drugs or alcohol. Sexual addicts struggle to control their behavior, and they experience despair over their constant failure to do so. But then, you know, the loss of self-esteem grows and then that fuels the need to escape even further into their addictive behaviors. And then a sense of powerlessness comes over. So it's really this, we call it an addictive cycle and a shame cycle is really strong within sex addicts where you have this compulsive behavior, you act out on it, then you feel awful for doing it. You promise you'll never do it again, but then you feel so bad over doing it that you want to feel better. So you do that thing because your brain says, I know what it takes to make me feel better. So it's that constant shame cycle, which really continues to drive sex addiction. So similar to all addictions, like you said, there's been this involvement of what addiction is over time. So How has sex addiction or what we know about sex addiction evolved over time? So when sex addiction first became, I guess, a thing that people started to diagnose or see it as a problematic behavior, really the origins of that came from family of origin issues and or early trauma. So sex addicts seem to come from really rigid authoritarian families And these are families where all issues, all problems, they're just black and white. Like there's no discussion about anything. Um, Nothing's negotiable. There's one way to do things. And really success in these families means that you do what the parents want to the extent that children lose the thought of who they are. So that normal child development doesn't happen. So by the time kids reach adolescence, you know, they don't really have, they don't have a lot of options. They either rebel against their parents or the other way they do this is to develop a secret life that the rest of the family doesn't know anything about. And both of these positions distort reality and both result really in a trust of or a distrust of authority. You can't share because you'll be shamed if you share. So you keep it to yourself. And then you get a poor sense of self because you think, what's wrong with me? I'm doing this thing that's wrong and bad. And if the family's rigidity is also sex negative, where sex is bad, it's dirty, it's sinful, then sex really becomes exaggerated and more hidden. And so then the thing that is forbidden then becomes a thing of obsession for individuals a lot of times. But the other thing that they knew at this time was in addition, there was a lot of childhood abuse in these individuals. So 97% of sex addicts suffered early emotional abuse, 81% early sexual abuse, and 72% early physical abuse. But then what started happening is in the early 2000s, we started seeing these 
individuals that met the criteria for sex addiction, but they didn't come from these rigid family structures. There was no history of childhood abuse. And then it became like, well, what's going on here? And then it was sort of like, ding, 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 the internet. So then now what we really refer to when we're diagnosing and we start seeing the sources of things, we talk to individuals who have these problems about, we look for family of origin issues. We look for trauma. But again, what we're seeing more and more is that these things don't have to be there. What is happening is kids are just watching pornography on the internet and they're doing this at a younger and younger age all the time. And it's really that this was so prevalent in their childhood that it became very normalized. And, you know, I think a lot of people just assume that teenagers are going to see pornography and it's not a big deal. And some, it it isn't. But some, for whatever reason, it's kind of like video games, cell phones, social media, you know, these things are becoming, kids' brains are so excited at all times that and overstimulated that they want more and more stimulation. So it can be an addictive component, just like those other things are. And also, unfortunately, now with the internet, the pornography that's being viewed, it's video images, not still images like you would see in magazines that we had with the classic addicts. And these are a much more hardcore nature. There's a lot more out there that kids can get to very early. And there's so much research out there right now on brain development. But if you're talking about a, well, we know now brain development doesn't stop until you're 25. So if you're starting this behavior when the brain is developing, it really hardwires in the brain. This is how I get to that part of the brain that makes me feel good and it's exciting. And it's just hardwired that this is what I do when I don't feel well because I know the thing that makes me feel better. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things is that these individuals grow up after watching this and they know what turns them on. They can get to it quickly. And then what happens is having a sexual relationship with a hu- with another human, it just takes too much time. It's too much time. It's too troublesome. And it's easier just to go back to what they knew when they were younger. I would say the other piece that we're starting to see that's really changed is that more women are admitting to sex addiction behaviors and they're seeking help for it. And currently, there's still only about 25% of individuals who reach out for help are women. But we don't see through research any correlation. It's not like men are any more apt to have a sex addiction than women are. They're just more apt to self-report it. And I'm sure there's research on this, but my personal feelings on it are that just comes from societal norms. You know, men can, boys can be boys and they can act out sexually, but women have that extra layer of shame because not only do they have to admit that these behaviors are problematic, but they have to admit to the behaviors at all. Women don't even want to say that they view pornography at all, let alone that they view it and it's problematic. Yeah, that was one question you had made me think of was, is it really that women are suddenly, suddenly more, you know, having sex addiction? Or was it really always there and you're just seeing more women come out about it? Exactly. And I also think, I mean, there is also this change. It's an interesting change, I think, from a feminist perspective, because it goes both ways. There's this feminist perspective that says all pornography is bad. It's, you know, there there is abuse in the pornography industry. There is human trafficking. There are childhood sex abuse images, which I really would like to, you know, get a little two cents worth in there. We don't call it child pornography. Children cannot consent to any sex acts. So they're not performing pornography. This is child sex abuse. But all of those things come into the the pornography industry. And so I think there, you know, some people just look at it very broadly that all pornography is bad. Then there's, you know, also the sex positive aspect in feminine perspective that says to look more positively on sex work, that if women are taking advantage of commercialism and, you know, then 
they should get, they should be the ones to get the money from it. And so it depends on where you fall for that. For me, I tend to look at from a therapeutic standpoint, I just really want to look at it as how is this affecting your personal life? I don't ever go with a client on my own personal morals or my values. I look at theirs. If their morals and values are that pornography is bad, but they are using it, then you either have to adjust your morals and values to fit your behaviors, or you have to change your behavior so it fits back into your morals and values. Oh, I like that. Okay, so then to kind of put the clinician spin on it, so what are some signs of sex addiction that a clinician may see in a clinic setting, and how can providers screen for sex addiction? So one thing that I really encourage all providers is to just use the same screening that you would for alcohol or drugs, except for if you see these criteria, which would be like those 10 things that I listed, when people see, you know, when providers see those issues happening, then they tend to dig further into, are you using drugs? Are you, what is your relationship with alcohol? Those things are looked at. If you look and there is no excessive alcohol or drug use, I think then going into asking more questions about, is your sex life healthy? Asking more questions about that. I personally would love it if we could do some sort of a screening with individuals. I do know, I feel like, you know, more and more as more research is known about more things where we do put so much on clinicians, you know, look for this, look for that, look for this, look for that. Here's all these sheets that you give everybody when they come into the doctor's office. So I realize it's hard, but I think the biggest issue is to look if your client or if your patient is telling you that they're having issues, if they're having discomfort, if they're sad, if they're depressed, if they're anxious, instead of just writing a prescription for a medication that's going to dull those symptoms, refer them to a mental health provider. If you know that it's sex related, it would be great to have, you know, certified sex addiction therapists in your area to have somebody to refer that person to. A lot of people aren't going to just admit that, that this is what their behaviors are. So again, I think instead of either giving prescriptions for antidepressants or automatically sending to a psychiatrist who is just going to screen for screen for medication management, send that person to a therapist, let a therapist get at the root of what's going on. And then that therapist, if it's outside of their scope to treat sex addiction, they can refer to somebody who can. I do think some of the warning signs that I would say, if if an individual comes in and discloses that their partner's having an affair, if they disclose they're having an affair, if they come in to be treated for an STI, but they also say that they're in a monogamous relationship, again, to either dig a little further with that or refer out for somebody to assist with that. Specifically, if they are coming in for multiple STIs, that's whether it's coming from them or their partner, that's something that needs to be looked at more deeply. Do you have any advice then? So let's say a nurse practitioner is listening to this and then she is a patient who maybe is married in a monogamous relationship, but they're coming in for these multiple STIs. How can you approach this this subject of sex addiction without seeming too judgmental or shaming? Right. I think that's a great question because I think that's what keeps people from disclosing this is because they do feel very embarrassed or shamed about it. I think that's one of the areas that my practice specializes in is both sides of that, the betrayal trauma, as well as sex addiction. And I think people feel more comfortable disclosing that when they know that you understand the details about it. But I think specifically, if you have a relationship with that patient, that is your patient that you see regularly, just like you would talk to somebody if you see that they're depressed, they're anxious, and you just say, what's going on? Is something going on? These are warning signs. I think to just give the, 
What I think is the best way is to just give the opportunity, you know, give the space and the opportunity for the person to talk to you. If they're not ready to talk, it's like anything, they're not going to. If you if someone comes in who has a drinking problem and they write down they drink socially on your intake forms and you ask them what socially is to them, if they don't want to disclose, they're not going to. They're going to lie to you about it. So I think the best way is just to open that up and give them the opportunity if they're ready to tell their story. And, you know, I know a lot of people will come in and I know providers are sometimes the ones who get the crying and the things are a mess. I don't know what to do because they don't know where else to go, but their family doctor or clinician, their OB, somebody that they have a relationship with is somebody that they can talk to easier. Well, and I like how you mentioned how is your relationship with sex? And I think that's a a really interesting way to frame it. Because I think if you said, are you addicted to sex? That's a lot different than saying, how do you perceive your relationship with sex? And so I think I like how you frame that, that you can get, you can get at it without saying it. Exactly. And, and I think that's really important because I've had so many people that have come to see me who have already seen other therapists and they refuse to disclose because the therapist said something that made them feel judged. And so they just clammed up because it was like, this is not a safe place for me to share. If you think this thing is bad, what are you going to think when you find out this thing that is what I'm doing? And they just feel too judged to be able to talk about it. And you know, one thing that I would for any pediatricians, I really wish that we give out so much information every time you take your kids in for their yearly physical You get information on not smoking, on not drinking, on wearing your seatbelt, wearing your helmet. I really wish there could be one of those forms that also talked about the the negativity of pornography use and to inform parents, if nothing more, to let them know. And I think, you know, I think parents would really be surprised because the average age for somebody viewing pornography for the first time now is 11. And new research from the security company Bitdefender reports that children under the age of 10 now account for 22% of online pornography consumption of those under 18 years old. That's scary. Wow. So, I mean, we, I think we think it's 16, 17, 18 year olds who are viewing this and it's, I mean, it is, but it's also six, seven, eight, nine year olds. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I have a seven year old. So I'm like, okay. Who <laughs> <laughs> loves to get on Well, he doesn't have real YouTube, but. I think he could figure it out eventually. So, <laughs> well, and the scary part is like, I, I just had this conversation with some friends because we were talking, we have a group of us that were childhood friends and we shoot each other text messages about things. We're all in kind of similar fields. And we were talking about how the information we had for sex education and, and how that was and the different ways we got information. And one of the things that we remember doing was trying to look up words in the dictionary just to be like, what is it going to say? You know, but the problem now is, is kids Google those things. And when you Google boobs, guess what comes up? You know, I mean, it's not just a, you know, there's images and it's very direct links to pornography. And that a very simple thing from an eight-year-old just being like, ha ha ha, what is it? What am I going to see when I put boobs in? You know, it gives them hardcore pornography. So lately we have been adding a question into our podcast for our listeners who don't identify as clinicians. But I think today is a perfect time to talk to all of our listeners as parents or as people in kids' lives. So what tips do you have for framing conversations about sex addiction and pornography to children? When people ask me this, I would say this is like the number one question that I've ever been asked from my days at Planned Parenthood to now is like, 
how do I have these subjects with my kid or how do I address these subjects with my kids? And I usually always tell people about this, the story from when my kids were younger. And so I have three kids, two boys and a daughter. And at the time I would say our boys were probably like 11 and eight. And my daughter was probably two, but my husband, my ex-husband now, but my husband had went to get a haircut at the local barber shop, which is a female barber. And she was watching Oprah in her shop and he comes home and he's all upset because did I know what rainbow parties were? And he just saw this Oprah about rainbow parties. And I told him, yes, I did know what they were. Well, then our kids were at some sporting practice or something, the, the boys, and he went to pick them up. And my boys walked in the house with, I mean, eyes, which were super, super wide. And my oldest had his hands over his ears because he was so embarrassed. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> and they progressed to tell me that dad had a conversation about rainbow parties. And can you quick say what a rainbow party is for maybe our listeners who don't know what a rainbow party is? Yes. So at the time, it was a big thing going around because they were finding middle schoolers specifically, and it was either at people's houses or it was on the back of buses for sports things that girls would put on lipstick, different colored lipstick, and then they would take turns giving blowjobs to boys on the back of the bus. And then there were, you could tell who you had gotten the blowjob from by the color of lipstick that was on their penis. So that was the overall story that my husband decided to share with my 11 and eight year old. But the thing that I loved about that, that I use that story for is he took something in the media and then he discussed it with the kids. So it was something, it was like that teachable moment. And I think we need to start having those conversations with our kids very, very young age appropriate, of course, but to have those conversations young and have them often and have them continually. And to any opportunity that you have to have that discussion, the thing that that develops is it develops that if you wait till they're a teenager, it is awkward. And then nobody wants to have that awkward conversation. But if you've already been talking about body parts and giving correct anatomical terms and all of those things with your kids from a young age, it becomes very normal. It's not odd. And the thing that's amazing about that is when you get teenagers and college students, young adults, even as they get older, they will come to you with the difficult stuff because you've shown them they can. But with that, so again, there's the use those moments, those teachable moments. And I always tell parents if, so one thing is too, if it's a past that and you still feel awkward, stick your kid in a car and go on a drive with them and have the conversation then. It's so much easier. First of all, you don't have to make eye contact. Neither one of you do. And nobody can get away. Like you're stuck in the car. Kids can't jump out. They can't run to their bedrooms. So that's the best place to have those conversations. But also if kids or if parents feel really uncomfortable and it's too late, so to speak, to start from when they're young to really develop that, you have to support those sex education programs that are out there right now. We have great programs, Eyes Open Iowa, Planned Parenthood. They have great programs, but the problem is, is they are severely underfunded and we can't always get into the schools. I would love to preach all of these messages, but how do you get to the target audience? So again, that's why I reach out to clinicians because you at least see kids yearly for their yearly visits. And if parents aren't open to somebody coming into a school and having a discussion like this with their children, then they just don't get them. I know that you had previously told us this story on a phone call, and I was wondering if you could also share with our listeners in this, you know, how do you frame this with your kids? I thought that your husband also said some pretty, had some pretty sage advice for your kids on pornography. So can you also share that with our listeners on, okay, but now what? Like, what do you say? How do you specifically talk about pornography? Right. Yeah, that's something that Again, I thought he did a great job of kind of framing that and it's framed. I always say, I think he got this information. He is an IT exec 
And I remember he knew what the internet was going to do before I knew what the internet was going to do. He saw it. He, in the early days, had to fire so many employees or write them up because they were watching pornography at work. They were using work computers and laptops at home for pornography. So I think he saw this before it became mainstream. And I think for whatever reason, he saw the direction that it could head, but he very specifically talked to our boys about the fact of consent was the first thing. And he didn't come at them with the viewpoint. We've never came at our kids from the viewpoint of don't do something because I don't know, like, did we listen when our parents told us just don't do it? Like that doesn't work, you know? So we've always came at our kids from the idea that this will probably happen. So we want you to be safe. So healthy, safe is the best way to do it. So he just told the boys very specifically, like what you're watching is not real. Our children, all three of our children identified and have always identified as cisgender. So it was the conversations were around that because that's how they identified. But he just said, this is not okay to do these things with a girlfriend. Don't expect these things when you go out on a date. This is not normal, healthy sexuality. Your partner is not there to please you. A sexual relationship is about both people forming intimacy. Intimacy is the important part of it. So I think we've just really drove those messages home to all three of our kids. And I think that's a good message to give kids as they're growing up to really hit on the point of healthy sexual relationships. I don't like the term normal. I think that's used a lot and it's used in research. It's used in the books that I give my clients to read and it makes me crazy. And I always tell them normal is a setting on the dryer. There is no such thing as normal. So I all anywhere where I see normal, I switch it to healthy. Your normal is not my normal and is not their normal. It's healthy. I wanted to ask, do you have any thoughts, like you kind of talked earlier about, you know, the different perspectives of feminism, like all pornography is bad versus sex positive pornography, and then working with patients to sort of deal with that in their own morals. So do you find that there can be people who watch pornography and it's a positive or healthy behavior? Yes. I mean, I think people can do any, it's kind of like thinking about, can you use alcohol in moderation? Yes. If somebody, again, it kind of goes back to that. What are your values? If they don't meet criteria for a sex addiction, then pornography is fine if that meets their values and their morals for themselves. If you meet criteria for sex addiction, pornography is something that should not be in your life. And the biggest reason for it is, again, if you look back to tolerance, what happens with an alcoholic when they get tolerance is they drink more and more and more alcohol to have the same effect. What we see in sex addiction is behaviors escalate. So what might start off with pornography then turns to go into maybe meeting people on the internet, and then maybe you're webcamming with people on the internet, and then you might meet up with people on the internet. And then if that's not, that doesn't, then it's prostitutes. And then after that, it can be trying to start relationships with people you know, or in risky places to try to get caught. I mean, people have lost jobs, they've went to jail, they I mean, things have escalated, because their pornography addiction got so out of control that that was not enough for them. So I feel like if you have a sex addiction, you meet that criteria, pornography is a gateway drug to bad things. But I also think there's a lot of reasons for individuals, you know, if they don't have a partner, I think people use pornography with masturbation. And if you do that in a healthy way that you're not missing work or not, you know, not spending, again, it goes back to that. How is it affecting your life? If it's negatively affecting your life, don't do it. Otherwise, if you can do it in a healthy manner, I think it's fine. 
So building on this, one point of conversation that we've had in other episodes is around not screening if you aren't going to do something about a disclosure or know how to handle a disclosure. So what suggestions do you have for a clinician if a patient discloses that they are concerned that they may be addicted to sex? So I do recommend, again, if I look at it Like if someone comes into you and they tell you that they have a medical problem that is out of your scope of practice, you refer out. I think it's just the same thing here. You refer to, if possible, if you have somebody who's a certified sex addiction therapist in your area, then you would refer out to that. And you can find, it's called ITAP, which is the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. So it's www.iitap.com. And there is a tab for find a therapist. And you can find, you can look up by zip code, all of those things. You can find the therapists that are closer to you to refer to. But at the minimum, you know, I would ask to please refer to whoever the local community mental health provider is to have an assessment done. But another really, some other really great resources are SAA, which is Sex Addicts Anonymous, SASH, the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health, and SLAA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. And Our website, my therapy office, we have a resource tab on our website and our website is fullheartfamilytherapy.com. And there there's resource links, there's contacts for all of our therapists, there's Iowa SAA meeting locations, times, how to call into them. There's just a lot of really good resource and information. So I would direct people to that if they don't know where else to go. Can you talk to us a little bit? Okay, so say I'm a provider. I want to make sure that I have these tools or I have I have a process, right? Someone says they're addicted to sex. I know who to send them to. I'm assuming and what I think is that all therapists are not created equally, right? Like not all of them are trained to specifically handle sex addiction. So as a provider, how or even as a listener, really, how do I know that someone is going to know and to treat this? Yes, I think the only way right now, the only individuals that have an actual certification in this are CSATs. So they should be a certified sex addiction therapist or a certified sex therapist. They can also deal with this. But there are other therapists who have experience with it. They may not be certified, but they have experience. I think what I always recommend is to, if at all possible, to contact somebody who is a CSAT and then they can also give you, I mean, there are individuals in our practice at Full Heart that don't actually have the CSAT, but they have lots of experience because they've worked with CSATs. They have others who have helped train. And before I started the certification process at all, I had Mary, who was the owner and the founder that taught me a ton and that I went to to ask questions. But I think that's the only way you can know for sure, because I will say from experience, we've had couples or individuals who have come to see us who have been through three, four, five therapists who actually have done more harm than good. You know, some people who just don't understand this or they don't think it is an issue, so they don't diagnose it. And it's done more harm in relationships by sometimes telling partners like, you know, just get over the pornography use. It's normal. It's fine. Don't worry about it because they don't realize that it's led to an addiction that is then escalating in behaviors. So then if I'm noticing my patient has a sex addiction. And maybe I live in a community where we don't have a CSAT or really even someone who may work with sex addiction frequently. So do you have any advice for patients then like how to tell this therapeutic relationship is not going well and maybe I need to find someone else? Right. Well, I think anytime when 
most of the people that have left a therapist, it's because you have that gut feeling. I mean, even when people walk in the door to see me, I always tell them that it really stinks, but finding a therapist is like finding a partner. It's like dating. You know, sometimes you meet somebody and you're like, yes, we connect. This is great. Sometimes you're like, no, this did not go well. I don't feel comfortable. And then sometimes you just got to try it out for a little bit to figure out whether it's a match or not. But if you don't feel like it's a match, the biggest thing that I've realized is I tell people, if you find yourself lying to your therapist, then there's a bigger problem. So if you don't feel comfortable with that person where you can really be honest with them, you need to move on. Now, luckily right now, and we're hoping there's a bill in right now going through the Iowa legislature, but we're trying to get telehealth to continue even after the pandemic's over. That has made life so much better for so many people because I now have clients that I'm seeing for um, sex addiction that live in Eastern Iowa, Northern Iowa. They don't have to drive several hours to come see me. They can stay at home and we can see them via telehealth. So that's a huge thing right now. There's also, there's a therapist who is in, who's a CSAT who lives in South Dakota, but he has an Iowa license so he can practice here. So again, as long as individuals can do telehealth, that is an option for them. So you triggered some other thoughts for me. And I think sometimes what happens is that clinicians may not know or be fully cognizant that what they're saying is really damaging. And so I'm just wondering if you could give us some examples of things, you know, especially since you have this breadth of experience that clients have come to you and said, my provider told me this so that maybe our providers can say, oh, (laughs) I'm not going to say that. (laughs) Right. I think the biggest one that I've heard the most often from individuals is the more of the the things that are said that make them feel shameful or feel like what they are doing is excessive. Uh, An example that I have is an individual said that something was said along the lines of, uh, I've had patients before who have masturbated up to three or four times a day. And they said it in that way, like that's super excessive. And my client said, all I could think of is I'm masturbating to pornography 25 to 30 times a day. And that if they thought three or four, like up two, then I'm really sick. And they think really negative things about me. The other thing that, and and this is, I realize that it's a moral issue and it's hard, but just telling people to pray on it or referring to, you need to talk to your minister, you need to talk, you know, those sorts of things. That's great. I think faith is a great thing for individuals and it absolutely is something that coincides. It's part of, you know, our 12 step recovery programs. But that's like, if you go in and tell somebody that you're having chest pain and they tell you to pray on it, that's not always, you you need an expert to help. You need some therapies and interventions to assist with that too. It's really a holistic way of looking at it. So I think any way where I'm very careful to never talk to clients and try to give a worst case example, like, oh, I've had a client because you don't know, you don't know what's going to come out. And if they think the worst that you've seen is something that isn't as bad as what they're doing, then it's bad. So I think any of those morality issues are are tough ones that make people clam up and don't want to talk. And we have an upcoming episode, I think, I'm not sure when it'll come out. I'm getting mixed up on all my times on neutral and compassionate care. And I think that's a conversation that is really going to dovetail well with this because it really is, I mean, what you're talking about is neutral, compassionate care. Yeah, that's a good point. So can you Tell our listeners just kind of very briefly, what does therapy look like for someone who has a addiction to sex? Yeah, so treatment really depends on the number of diagnostic criteria that clients meet. And again, it's very similar to how you would look at if you were assessing when I worked in substance abuse, if somebody meets that mild criteria 
then it's something where they meet with the therapist and it's more educational. It's just explaining to them how these behaviors can escalate, interventions that they can take to help. If they meet that moderate category, then that is outpatient treatment. And I do that by seeing a client once a week. They do group therapy also. Treatment really consists of, if you're doing any kind of treatment, it's individual therapy, group therapy, 12-step meetings, utilizing sponsors, and couple recovery work if they're part of a couple. If they meet the criteria for a severe addiction, there are inpatient programs that we refer clients to. A lot of times, that I mean, they can be from two weeks to 30 days. 30 days is the best. Unfortunately, sex addiction is not in the DSM and it's not covered by your insurance. A lot of times we do have co-occurring issues where people have the sex addiction, but then they also might have a mental health condition that can be covered under insurance. There's also some people have other addictions. So substance abuse addiction is covered. So sometimes you can go and you're getting help for both of them, but it will be covered. But typically sex addiction alone is not covered, but it is very helpful. I tell people if they go to an inpatient program, they are doing like a year's work of therapy with me in one month because it's so intensive. And the other thing is, is that it removes them from They don't have the internet. They don't have their phones. They can't access pornography. They can't access outside partners. It, It really just, you know, it takes 30 days at least to calm the brain down. And when someone starts therapy, there's a 90 day abstinence period that we really strongly urge because you can't rewire the brain if you're continuing to give it the drug that it wants. You need to stop it. The thing with SA treatment is that it's not like substance abuse where you just want to cut it out forever. The thing that we want to do with sex addiction treatment is we want to slowly reintroduce a healthy sexual pattern. The idea isn't to not have sex for the rest of your life. It's to have a healthy sexual relationship whatever that is for each individual, but it's recreating the dynamic and recreating the way that the brain looks at sex so that it's not being used as consumption, but instead as part of a relationship. Yeah, that's a really good point because if you are addicted to a substance, one of the things is to never use that again, but that isn't really a good thing necessarily to just say you can't ever have sex or (laughs) look at a naked person again. (laughs) Yeah, it's just not pragmatic. So uh, multiple times, Kathy, you have brought up the role of partners and betrayal therapy. And so how can clinicians support a person whose partner is addicted to sex? Yeah, so there is an entire discipline now um, regarding betrayal trauma. So neuroscientists actually have scanned the brain and they've now been able to actually measure for emotional pain. And one thing that I thought was really interesting when I was going through all my training was that the number one emotional pain, the thing that registers as the highest pain for an individual is the death of a child. The number two is a betrayal of a romantic partner. And most normally that betrayal is sexual betrayal. So there has become this whole thing around it where it's 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 a trauma. This is a traumatic experience that you have experienced. And specifically, if you find out that your partner has a sex addiction, it's How do you have empathy and support your partner through their recovery process when you're dealing with your own trauma from what happened to you? So this is a very specific discipline that really combines sex addiction with the betrayal trauma. So it's helping, it's educating partners on what their their partner is going through and what the steps are for them, as well as helping them to heal from their trauma. I always recommend there's also a SNON family groups 
So that is SAnon is for partners of sex addicts. And there are so many amazing groups that individuals can be a part of to really share and get get help through that. There's also a, a site called COSA, Codependence of Sex Addicts. So that also gives a lot. It's a support program. At our program at Full Heart, we have groups that are facilitated by therapists. And so we have partner groups for the betrayal trauma, as well as the groups for the sex addict. And so those are support because they have other individuals who are going through the same thing that they are. In addition to, they also have a very, you know, they have somebody facilitating it who's actually doing treatment when they're doing it. So they're getting both pieces of that. I think for clinicians to support, I I think whether it's the partner or it's the addict, again, I think it's normalizing things. And I don't mean normalizing by saying, oh, that's just what people do. I mean, normalizing by saying this is a real issue and lots of other people are going through it. And for the partner specifically, I think it's really, really important that we let them know this has nothing to do with you. It's the addict's brain. It's not because of something. It's not because you're not having sex with your partner enough. It's not because you're not attractive. It's not, it's none of those things. It's not about the partner. It's about the addict and their brain and how they got here. So similar to like what a clinician might see as warning signs that their patient might have a sex addiction. What might be some warning signs that a patient's partner would um, have a sex addiction or be going through betrayal trauma? Again, I think it's if you look at if they're reporting, I know one thing that most clinicians do now is they do assess for depression. You know, have you been feeling down? Have you been If your client reports that they're feeling down, don't give them a prescription immediately for an antidepressant. Ask more questions. Or I just really wish the go-to in that situation was, I'm going to refer you to a therapist. Let a therapist take the time. I get it. Clinicians do not. We all have so much documentation and we're pressed to go from room to room to room as quick as we can. And we're just insurance. Everything demands so much out of us that I get that a clinician cannot look at that many things. I think the biggest thing that I would like a takeaway from clinicians to be is if you see that you're patient is having distress in some area. And if you don't feel like you have that time to really sit down and figure out where is this coming from, the automatic thing should be a referral to a therapist. Let the therapist dig. We have 50 minutes that we can dig in and really figure out what's going on. And then if the issue is, you know, I, and I, believe in antidepressants. I believe in anti-anxiety medications. And obviously for bipolar, schizophrenia, like there are medications that need to be had, but those should be the minority, not the, you know, not what we just absolutely do. So I think just referring out and letting them get more in-depth assistance. I feel like this has been like the easiest interview. Like it just rolls. I know. Kathy, you're just so fun to chat with. (laughs) Well, and it's like I said, it is pretty funny because I, I'm trying to remember how it was that I said, one of the things that like I want so badly is an audience for all of this. And it's hard, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to, how do you, how do you talk to Just, I mean, people who may be struggling with this, like, how do you get the message out to them? Yes, when people have a problem, they look to say, who can help me? But how do you keep it from being a problem? How do you, you know, instead of, I like to be proactive instead of reactive, but how do you get to people? You know, if you can't get into the schools to talk about kids, to kids about the harm, if parents won't listen because they put their hands over their ears because pornography, sex, we can't go there. It just is so hard to know, like, how do we educate on these subjects when it's so hard to get to people? And, but I was, 
joking with my significant other. And I was just like, I said something to the effect of last night, like I could literally talk about this stuff forever. And he's like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> so can we, <laughs> yeah, we have, we have partners that say some stuff yeah. to us. Like this that. is also <laughs> why we have a podcast so that right. we can talk about this. And I, and Kathy, I mean, this is really why we do it because it is, you're right. It's so hard. And Stephanie, I both saw this in our research, especially in mine with rural women. I mean, the rural areas are just, I feel like in some ways the toughest places to crack. And, and that's why we were like, how do we almost influence the influencers? Because people might go to their doctor and they might share this with their doctor. And so that's why we really put this push to how can we connect with clinicians, whoever that may be, because a lot of times that's like the only point of contact because mental health is so stigmatized, sex is so stigmatized. And, and how can we as clinicians foster these conversations in a way that, because a lot of times women don't feel comfortable bringing this up and they're not going to volunteer this information. But if we can create a safe, welcoming space and we ask the questions, because nine times out of 10, they pro- there's probably something going on, but they don't want to re- bring it up themselves. Mm-hmm. So if we as providers can ask these tough questions without being weird about it. I mean, I'm not kidding you. I was talking to my OB-GYN. So long story short, I had a miscarriage. It's been Jumanji ever since. And so I was talking to my provider and he couldn't even say like, we're talking about you do these LH test strips to see if you're ovulating. And he's like, so when you, when you test positive, like, you know, how, like, you and your part, like, when are you, how frequently are you coming together? He said coming together. Oh, my God, Nicole. It was so awkward. And I was like, okay, so you're asking me how many times do we have sex after I have a positive, you know, it, but it was just like, it was so painful to listen to him try and say that. And I was like, you just spit it out. Okay. Like, you know, that's, that's one of the favorite, my favorite parts about my job is when I can normal. I had a couple just a couple of weeks ago and she was describing to me that they had gotten into an argument. And I was like, so tell me about that. And she's like, well, we went away for the weekend and we were in a hotel and I was just, well, you know, I thought, well, I was hoping. And I said, you wanted to have sex? And she's like, well, yeah. So then she starts going into how, and her uh, partner says, well, I hurt my back. And she's like, well, there are other things he could do. (laughs) And I was like, and so I just like was breaking it down. I was like, okay, you realize it's not always about what gets you off. Sometimes it has to be for her, you know, because your back's hurt doesn't mean your fingers are broken. <laughs> when I'm able to go there, I just see the relief just come out of them. And it's like, so I can have a real, or someone will, you know, drop an F bomb or something. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm like, you can say whatever you want to, you know, I mean, that's the only way I can normalize things for people where they don't, you, you're not going to tell me these intimate, intimate details and secrets that you have shared with nobody. If I can't make you feel comfortable, like that's my number one job. Mm-hmm. And I just want to add about that for our listeners, we do have an episode from Nikki Julian. Well, two episodes. One is about sex shame, just generally. But we have, we recorded another one with her for clinicians because clinicians need to deal with their own sex shame. We all have it to some degree. And we need to deal with our own sex shame because we're bringing that into the exam room with our patients and then it's coming across as judgment and it's unhelpful. Well, and I think this is a conversation that Nicole and I had earlier that I said it was, it's so strange to me because I worked at Planned Parenthood. And for instance, one of the, on the intake forms, every single time you come in, we asked very specific questions like, 
how many sexual partners have you had in the last year? And then we ask, have any of your sexual partners had other partners in the last year? It's a screening tool. What do we need to screen for? What do we need to maybe talk about? That opens up the individual to really talk about, okay, yeah, my partner did have an affair or I had an affair or it opens that up. And after my divorce, I went to my gynecologist who delivered all my kids and, you know, had this long-standing relationship. I talked to him about my divorce. He never asked me. He didn't ask me, was there infidelity in the marriage? Should we possibly screen for something? Do you have new partners? Are you being safe after being married for 20 years? Like none of that conversation happened. And that all would have happened if I had went to Planned Parenthood. And so we need to have our clinicians do the same thing and be open to talk about sex and and realize what's happening. There's this whole generation of women who are getting HPV now who didn't have it before because they were in long-term marriages, didn't get vaccinated, didn't know that was a thing. And I, I had somebody this week who was very freaked out about it after a divorce and finding out. So those are just things that I think we need to be able to talk to individuals and we got to understand where they're coming from and their their situation. You know, a big social worky thing is, you know, meet them, meet your client where they are. And I think clinicians need to do the same thing and you have to understand where they are to be able to do that. I love all of that. And building on that, and meeting people where they are. You have mentioned a ton of websites and resources. I'm just curious if you have any other tools or resources that our listeners can access to learn more about sex addiction. Really, I know I've said this 10 times, but like I refer everybody to our website because Mary has done such a great job of just having them all there. So my go-to though would be the very first thing that you tell somebody if they don't feel like they want to go see a therapist and start that whole thing. SAA meetings and SNON meetings Right now, they're doing call-in meetings as well as Zoom meetings, but you can literally call in. You don't have to physically go. And it's a good taste of what those what that's like and getting some information, getting some education. The other thing that I would say is if you want any sort of reading material, the very best thing to start off with anybody is Out of the Shadows by Patrick Carnes. He really has done the most in-depth work on sex addiction. And then his daughter, Stephanie Carnes, has a huge body of work on betrayal trauma. And that's the institute. He's kind of the founding father of the institute where I'm getting my certification through. So it's just great information for as kind of background information. Well, that sounds like a family I want to be friends with. Also, Kathy, can you remind us what the website is then that Mary created? Yes, it's fullheartfamilytherapy.com. And we're located in Ankeny. So some of the things are, as far as the meetings, might be location specific, but it does have the SAA uh, website and phone number that you can link to or the phone number to call to get uh, meetings if you're in a different area. And is that website also something that would have helpful resources for clinicians? Yes. Okay, perfect. Let's kind of wrap it up. What's one thing that you would want all clinicians to know about sex addiction? Well, I have two, <laughs> but this is not an issue about morality. It just isn't. It's an addictive process. And if it's left untreated, the behaviors will escalate. So I think that's the biggest thing that I do want people to know is that these behaviors will escalate with time and it's not about morality or control. It is an addictive process. Kathy, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end? The only thing is I just want to thank you ladies for this platform. It's really hard to get this information out. And I'm glad that there that there are platforms that we can do that. And I appreciate you both. 
Well, thank you. We appreciate you. Yes, we appreciate you. Thank you, Kathy. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. 